Well, it's oh, yeah, like. We, you join us in a pub in air after stage three of the Tour de Cosse. We've polished off a Sunday roast for our dinner and we've ordered a sweet pizza which would horrify Chiro and, for that matter, all Italians. Oh, well, that's all right. There we are. There we are. Take that. Thank you. I mean, that wasn't a terribly convincing yes there, but Simon, just. Um, just describe, using words, what we've ordered for dessert. I'm struggling for words, but it, it's... Well, uh, uh, what we saw, it leapt out on the menu to me. It was a, a nine-inch pizza, dessert pizza, and it said it had bananas, Nutella, marshmallows, strawberries... Chocolate chips. Chocolate chips... It's, it's something to behold. And it's arrived. But there are no bananas, though. I mean, we've got about 40 bananas in the van, so we could have brought our own. But I think we'd probably be all right. I mean, I'm, I think I've, I'm sort of blurred vision from the potassium but, um, but with all the bananas I've had today. But no, I think I've got to take a picture of this dessert pizza. We, um, we asked the lady what she thought of it prior to ordering, and she, she just said, it smells nice. It does smell nice. It does smell nice. It does look extremely sweet. Um, and we've all said none of us really have a sweet tooth. So this could be a challenge, but let's give it a go. Stage four of the Tour de Cosse takes us past Prestwick Golf Course, where the first Open Championship was played. It is to golfers what Au Reve Matin, the little cafe in Montgeron near Paris, is to the Tour de France. The beginning chapter of an incredible story. After that, we'll cut inland to visit Rugby Park, home of Kilmarnock Football Club, and then we'll hug the coastline, taking in a lunch stop at Largs and the famous Nardini's Cafe and Ice Cream Shop. Then it's up and over the Clyde Muirshiel Regional Park before dropping down to Capillo, within sight of the mighty River Clyde. That's where Green at Morton play. In all, it's just under 100 kilometres again, and almost a thousand metres of climbing. So we're expecting to be in the saddle for about four to four and a half hours. And Major Dundee and Win My Wings has come, they're going ever so well inside the last half mile. We're on Racecourse Road, Simon, and um, it explains last night the Hindu in Stranra at Papa Rubs, they arrived back on their coach from Air Racecourse, where they'd spent the day, because it was a Scottish Grand National as our very friendly host at the Miller House Courtyard told us a bit earlier on today. Um, so there we are. This is the Tour de Cosse, a series for Explore. The beautiful game on two wheels, supported by the cycling podcast title sponsors, Super Sapiens. The Scottish FA Cup fourth round, Regan City nil, and the United one. Clyde Bank against Burnian as a late kickoff. Dundee 1, Meadowbank Thistle 1, Hamilton Academical 1, Motherwell 2. I've also been catching up with the football results. Celtic won the old firm derby. And... I'll just say good or bad. I don't want to put my foot in any camp there. Well, and unfortunately for Giancarlo, Queen of the South fan that we met on Friday, they lost their Challenge Cup final 3-1 to Wraith Rovers. Uh, but I hope he had a nice day out, nevertheless. But, yeah, they didn't bring home the trophy. Back to Dumfries. Now, talking of our guest 
house where we're staying tonight. Lovely place. The room's so warm when I set foot in there. Really needed that after a fairly chilly couple of hours on the bike. Had an absolutely boiling hot shower, which was nice. One small, um, not, well, it's just the fact that they're not going to be serving breakfast in the morning. So I've had an idea. Oh no, I don't, I don't know where this is going to go. Well, I've had a twinkle in your eye. No, well, I've had a look at the weather forecast and it doesn't look great tomorrow. I think we are going to get wet. So I wondered whether, with the provisions that Sam got from the supermarket this morning, whether we could have a bit of a, a bit of a buffet breakfast of sandwiches and fruit and whatever we've got left over. Actually, eat that here in the morning and just roll out because we're heading to Kilmarnock, which is famous for the killy pie. So we can have a killy pie at about 10 o'clock if we get on the road nice and early. Sold. Done? I think that's a great idea. So we'll, uh, we'll divide up the rest of the provisions tonight and we'll have a little buffet breakfast in our room, I guess, in the morning and then roll out. How do we go about dividing? Is it we put it all in the middle and sort of grab Hungry Hippos style? <laughs> I think we should put it all in the middle and take turns choosing and we should let Sam have first choice and then you can go second, Simon, and I'll go third. Um, and I'll grill you a tomato as well somehow. We're hungry, hungry it's Hungry Hungry Hippos! First to gobble up the most marbles wins! Hungry Hungry Hippos! We're Hungry Hungry Hippos! We love to feed our face! We're Hungry Hungry Hippos! Describe the clouds to me, Simon. A great big grey balloon slowly being filled up with water, sort of from the tap. And at any stage it could go pop. Would that be accurate? I'm sorry, I'm looking at your face now and you look angry with me. No, not at all. I'm actually smiling, beaming. It's not raining now, Simon. That's the key. It, it, it does feel blustery. It's gone still now, but we're going to be up the coast a bit today. But... Let's just take it as it comes. 100 kilometres, it's four one-hour rides, or five one-hour rides if we get headwind. <laughs> oh, dear. No, no, it's, it's good. Um, yeah, it's good. Oh, you, you've, you've toughed out much worse than this. We'll, let's just uh, get rolling, get on the road. Uh, there's the, the incentive of a killy pie in Kilmarnock. Uh, would you normally eat a meat pie at half past nine in the morning? Um, of, not normally, but on this occasion I think I can do it. Not since student days, <laughs> left over from the night before. Oh. <laughs> the pigeon walking around the lounge, that happened. <laughs> you had a pigeon that lived in your lounge? Just came out of my bedroom one morning and there was a pigeon eating the remains of a pizza in the lounge oh my goodness was that in Cornwall your student life in Cornwall it was student life in Cornwall yeah true where you learned your trade as a photographer I mean you know that pigeon instrumental in your success (laughs) I didn't think to take a picture of it though (laughs) as the great Glaswegian comedian Billy Connolly once said if you don't like the weather in Scotland just hang around for 20 minutes This is probably a good time to mention that the Tour de Cos is also supported by the cycling podcast clothing partner MAP, who have kitted us out with everything we need for all weathers. Whether it's raining or shining, MAP have clothing for your ride. Go to map.cc to check out the whole range. Stopping already, Simon, just a few kilometres in, we've come down 
the Ayrshire coast there. Wind is very much off the left, isn't it? Coming in off the sea, as you'd expect. Are we stopping because you wanted me to have a little slurp of my secret tea? Have you got a secret tea? <laughs> a hot tea? Wow, that clever. Oh yeah, milky. That sort of builder's tea in a bidon. <laughs> nice. And a monogrammed uh, water bottle with your name on it. That's very smart. Wow. Uh, well, we are at Prestwick Golf Club, founded in 1851. And as it says on the sign there, the birthplace of the Open, because the the Open Championship, the I suppose the 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 Tour de France of the golf world, really. The, 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 the original and the biggest and the most famous and the much imitated, I guess. First held here in 1860 and was held here continuously until 1870. Last held here in 1925. And this coastline obviously troons just up the road as well, where, um, well, a couple of friends of mine once went to the Open at Troon and I couldn't go because it clashed is with the Tour de France, the Open every year, unfortunately. But it's beautiful golf course, look, isn't it? I mean, the one we came past a mile or so back was, uh, you know, didn't look that well manicured. How do you think you'd fare with your? Um, you have a, a way of playing golf, and that is with a seven iron and a putter. How do you think you'd fare around here? Um, <laughs> it might be tricky, mightn't it? Because it's difficult to keep a seven iron low out of the wind. <laughs> it goes quite high. <laughs> But that is my golfing strategy, yeah. I'm, no, I'm not really a golfer. Daniel Freeb is the golfer of the podcast. Very, very good golfer too. I've seen him play. And I mean, he absolutely wallops it with the driver. I think that's a technical term. Wallops it with the driver. Um, once famously beat Justin Rose when they were juniors. I mean, he doesn't mention that often. So, you know. Uh, how would I fare? I think I'd be, <laughs> I'd be around here in a fair few shots, I would say. The flags are... Flapping, aren't they? Is that is that how you, what a flag does when it's really quite windy? Yeah, the, the wind is definitely strong coming in off the sea, and my little seven iron plops up the fairway would, uh, well, that, they'd just probably get blown as as far back as they go forward, <laughs> maybe if the wind was against. I say fairways, but this is links golf, isn't it? It's kind of there's no real, there's just there's just short grass, slightly longer grass, longer grass, thicker grass. It's the uh, the traditional golf, the coastal golf courses, Lynx golf as it's called. And uh, yeah, I'd, I've never played one. I'd love to. Actually, no, that's not true. I've played down in Kent on a, on a, a sort of a, an inland Lynx, I think that was, or maybe a, a parkland Lynx hybrid. I mean, I'm out of my depth here <laughs> on, on golf, really. As anyone who's seen my swing will, uh, will know. But a golf swing is very individual, isn't it? There's different ways to get the job done. Oh, it's a bit. <laughs> oh, that's a bit. That's a bit much. But no, it is. It, it is. But there's different ways. You're not one of those people that does the. If you're right-handed, you do it left. You left-handed. Left-handed golf. Swing. No, no, no. no. Uh, but no, the golf swing. It's an individual thing. It's a bit like the pedalling stroke, isn't it? As long as it gets the job done, there's elegant, and then there's inelegant. And I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm towards the inelegant end of the spectrum. Probably on both fronts, really, cycling as well. Um, but I meant, made the comparison with the Open and the Tour de France. Scottish players dominated the Open. I mean, the, the, the idea of tournament golf really started here in Scotland. It started here, really, I guess, with the Open. 29, the first 29 Open Championships were won by Scottish players. Um, it's a bit like 
I guess in a way, I mean, not even the Tour de France had that long a run of French winners from, from its inception at all. Um, the last Scottish winner of the Open, Paul Laurie in 1999. So he's not been waiting quite as long for an Open winner as the French have been waiting for a Tour de France winner. I wonder what will happen first, a Scottish Open win or a French Tour de France win? <laughs> More than half the competitors had begun their final round at St Andrews in the rain when the freak storm burst upon the course. This was it. No wonder it was decided to stop play in the Centenary Open Golf Championship. In minutes, the course was underwater. The sudden cloudburst was just about the heaviest in the history of the Open. Our pictures are more emphatic than words. We're outside Prestwick Airport, Simon. What's that famous for? Aeroplanes taking off and landing. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You've been reading Wikipedia. <laughs> I thought you were going to get that. Maybe if you... Um, it's, flying it's in the golfers? No. Uh, well, I'm sure it would be. I'm sure it would be if they're playing at Troon. Oh, oh. It's, the, it's, the, it's Glasgow Presswick Airport, so it's a main hub for Glasgow. Um, oh, I know it. No, I don't know it. I thought you would get that. If you'd been reading the Tour de Cos roadbook uh, on the Google Drive, you'd know that apparently this is the only place that Elvis Presley, the great Elvis Presley, ever set foot on British soil. Of course, of course. And you and I were both alive when Elvis was alive. Did you know that? He died in 77, is that right? Very early 77, I think, yeah. Elvis Presley set foot on British soil for the one and only time on March the 3rd, 1960, when his US Army transport aircraft stopped for refuelling en route from Germany back to the US. So I guess that was when he was doing his national service uh, for the US Army in Germany in, well, 1960, when he was still an established, well, he was an established star already by then. He was a rock and roll god by, what, 58? Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. <laughs> I think we'll leave that there. Born through a party in the county jail. The prison band was there and they began to wait. The band was jumping and the drum began to swing. You should have heard the locked out jailbird sing that rock. Everybody rock. Next stop, Rugby Park, home of Kilmarnock Football Club and the venue for a very memorable Braveheart dinner a few years ago. The Braveheart Cycling Fund was founded in 2003 by former British champion and Motorola rider Brian Smith. The aim is to raise money to support the next generation of Scottish cyclists. At Kilmarnock I was due to meet another stalwart of the Scottish cycling scene, someone who has been instrumental in helping to organise one of the most important stage races on the calendar, the Girvan, a race where generations of British and Irish riders had cut their teeth. It's the fourth of goal from here. We're going to go up to Largs right. and then Greenock tonight, Greenock Morton, and oh, then right. all the way across round to Glasgow tomorrow in what looks like rain. But there we are, there we are. Thank you very much for coming out. If I can ask you to stand that side just out of the wind and I'll shelter the, the recorder a bit. First of all, tell me who you are because you are almost the namesake of a very famous Scottish cyclist. That's indeed the case, yes. Uh, so I'm David Miller. I've been involved in cycling since 1968, when as a 15-year-old, some of my school chums invited me along as cannon fodder to the local 10-mile time trial. 
and uh, I've really been involved with cycling and Wallace Hill Cycling Club since that time forward. 1968, that was also the first year of the race that was to become the Girvan, is that right? The Ayrshire Three Day, I think it was, and it actually the first stage of it started here in Kilmarnock. Now, as I say, I wasn't involved in that first one. I, I wasn't involved until the event actually did locate in Girvan. But yes, as I understand, the first three-day race was a place-to-place, uh, which took in Kilmarnock, Dumfries and Girvan. And, I mean, the Girvan, it was an institution, wasn't it, on the Premier calendar before that, I guess the Star Trophy. A three-day stage race, uh, often had a circuit race, um, sometimes a little time trial. Um, did it, is that right? Or did I, a time trial only in the early days? a time trial that I'm aware of. Uh, we tended to have uh, a road stage on the Saturday, a circuit stage in Girvan on the Saturday evening. The longest stage tended to be the Sunday and the Monday tended to be a hillier stage in the hills just inland from Girvan. And it was held over the Easter weekend, that right? That's correct, yes. Saturday, Sunday and Monday. So Friday everyone assembled down in Girvan, team managers meetings, equipment being distributed as required, Saturday morning kick-off around about 11 o'clock usually. Um, what sort of race was it? I mean, I can imagine having ridden, we haven't come through Girvan actually, but we've come through the countryside around and, and just inland from Girvan. So I've got a rough idea, but what sort of terrain were the road stages like? Well, they, they did tend to vary. The Saturday road stage, which again tended to be slightly shorter because we had the crit in the evening, uh, tended to be up or down the coast roads, which aren't flat but aren't as hilly. The Sunday, as I say, tended to be the longest road stage and took in some of the hills depending on which route we chose and Monday was generally just accepted as being the hilly stage. And, I mean, it's a who's who of British cycling, the riders that took part in it, isn't it, over the years? It was indeed. We had some quite notable names won the event and quite notable names who participated in the event and didn't win. I know also Sean Kelly as a young man came over from Ireland I think to ride the Girvan. He did indeed yes. Uh, my wife actually has a, a clearer recollection of Sean Kelly being at the event than I do. Uh, she relates a tale of Sean and an Irish manager coming into the judges room when he wasn't happy about being penalised for something. Uh, now again at the, the Braveheart dinner which was held here uh, she related this tale to Sean, who said, I don't remember that. <laughs> Sean did have a bit of a habit, uh, especially as a young man, grabbing jerseys and, you know, um, weaving over into other people's racing line a bit in the sprints. He was a daredevil sprinter as a young man. He certainly was. Hewn from the, the soil of Carrick and Sewer, he uh, was a, a hardy rider, and you know, that in no part, small part led to the successes that he had. You mentioned the Braveheart dinner there. I think that might have been the, one of the years I came here because Sean Kelly was one of the guests um, when it was held here at Rugby Park in uh, in one of the sort of the, the very pleasant conference rooms in the, the big main stand there. Um, tell me a little bit about the Braveheart Fund because I was invited by my friend and colleague Richard Moore who you may know um, passed away last week and um, so it's especially poignant being here today. The first time I've come back since that Braveheart dinner several years ago but tell me a bit about the Braveheart Fund. Well the Braveheart Fund was really set up by 
Alan Miller, who's the son of the original organiser of the Girvan Three Day, George Miller. Uh, neither of whom are related, we just all happen to come from this particular area. Uh, and I think Alan felt there was just a gap where talented young Scottish riders didn't really have the support that they merited. So he set up the, the Braveheart Fund and part of that was the Braveheart Dinner using connections, particularly through Brian Smith, I believe, uh, to invite notable cycling personalities along. And it was very successful. The the part suite that you mentioned where it was held here, now that could, you could have 250, 300 people seated for dining there. And then they ran the very successful auctions and the Braveheart ride the, the morning after. I very nearly came a cropper in one of those auctions because um, I was uncomfortably close to spending a four-figure sum on a, I think it was a Geraint Thomas jersey. It would have been comfortably four figures by the time uh, it got to the winning bid, uh, a near miss for me there. Um, In terms of the Girvan, I'm thinking, you know, the riders that, that took part, uh, the household names, you know, Chris Boardman rode here. Yep. Um, I think Rob Hales won here. Mark Cavendish won a stage here in 2004 when he was a very young man. It was indeed. Uh, Rod Ellingworth brought a, a team, a team Perzo, which was effectively the, the GBB team, uh, along. And Mark, slightly chubby, curly haired 18 year old, in probably his first senior season. Uh, Yo-yoed on and off the back of the the bunch for quite some time and uh, managed to maintain contact with the leading group and as they came down into Girvan, he just came along the the right-hand side and pipped Julian Wynn to the line. Uh, For some time I actually thought it was uh, Malcolm Elliott who was in the same team at that time, but Malcolm Elliott actually finished slightly further down that particular stage and that I mean that would have been one of his first high profile wins Mark Cavendish and then three years later he was lining up at the Tour de France indeed I am fortunate enough uh, a chap who used to come to the event uh, quite a keen photographer a chap Davy Urquhart now Davy had a head on photo of Mark actually winning that sprint and I was fortunate enough he gave me a copy and in one of the Braveheart rides I got Mark to sign that for me so it uh, has pride of place and one of the walls in my home. And just lastly on the, the Girvan, because it is no more, sadly. Tell me what happened. Effectively, the chap who was organising the race uh, following on from me, uh, Ian Sinclair, who again sadly is no longer with us, uh, when we held the 40th edition of the Girvan, Ian felt that uh, the, the event, we were having difficulty housing the event in Girvan. Uh, Girvan itself had decreased the number of beds that it had and Ian felt that it was a good time to try and relaunch the event in a base which was a bigger town, Dumfries was much easier to access for teams travelling from all over and at that time we had a fairly sizeable commercial sponsor in Scottish Power Renewables and he just felt that after 40 years it was a good time to call a halt in Girvan, relocate to Dumfries and relaunch as the, the tour doing him. And does that continue to this day? Unfortunately not, no. After uh, three years I believe we had at Dumfries, uh, 
there was a change of personnel at Scottish Power Renewables. Decision was taken that the funding would go elsewhere. Ian himself, after a number of years, was quite keen to step back, didn't want to continue as an organiser. So no organiser, no funding, no race. A very familiar tale all over the UK, that really, for um, amateur and, and semi-pro cycling and events that provide that stepping stone for young riders to make the next step up on their road, hopefully towards the pro ranks. Um, th- the national championships will be in Dumfries later this year, though. Uh, that's, that's, that's good news for, for that particular region. I know it's not Ayrshire. But just lastly, David, um, have you got any you know, a couple of outstanding memories from the history of the Girvan from your time involved with it. I'm actually trying to think what the highlights would be <coughs> from because I you know, I had an association with the event prior to being the organizer and post being the organizer. But uh, I suppose you would have to say that Mark Cavendish having what he has committed to print as being his first big win. Uh, also I I have quite an affinity for the the support that Peter Longbottom gave to the event over many years and Peter was sadly taken from us at a young age uh, and uh, that's probably about the, the two main things that I have from it. Did you ever ride it yourself? No, I was never talented enough to participate in anything like that uh, as I say I was uh, taken along as a youngster uh, from school friends who and the term I used was cannon fodder and uh, you know, I fairly quickly realised that uh, competitively I was never going to be particularly good and went into an organisation, administration and continue doing things like that to this day. The Tour de Course is sponsored by Super Sapiens. The system of continuous glucose monitoring is helping keep Lionel in his performance zone as he tackles the beautiful game on two wheels. Use Super Sapiens to unlock your potential and fine-tune your fueling strategy for better results. Find out more at supersapiens.com. You, you were going to tell me um, about a time Richard Moore rode the, the Gervin. Yes, uh, Richard was a... A fairly young rider at the time, uh, doing well in the Scottish cycling scene, riding for one of the, the regional teams, and he approached me on the Sunday evening after the third stage of the race and requested his race licence back and said uh, he'd been hanging on at the back of the bunch and guys like Wayne Randall, John Tanner and Paul Curran went to the front and he said, I just went straight out the back. He says, I've never seen pace increase like that. And he says, that's enough. (laughs) Yeah, he was, uh, well, I mean, he made it to the Commonwealth Games for Scotland. Um, He was a very talented rider, Richard. And, uh, but I think he, his love for cycling was um, endured in a, in, in a competitive way with the likes of us where he could uh, he could half wheel us up the climbs and then uh, pip us over the top and um, and and, in, and and you know um, put us to the sword that way I've got some very fond memories of, of riding with Richard but just to get into those races you have to have a, a pretty high level of talent you know even to hang on to the back of a train being led by the likes of Tanner and Randall in those days I mean that was no mean feat oh, it certainly wasn't these were 
some of the very best riders in the country at the time and part of the driving force for trying to maintain the Girvan because for a number of years financially it wasn't easy to keep the race on the road was simply because there weren't many races like that and it did provide an opportunity particularly for some of the Scottish lads to get experience of riding against the best that Britain had to offer at the time. A famous son of Ayrshire is Graham O'Brien. Although born in England, he grew up in Ayrshire. With the hour record back at the forefront of people's minds following Filippo Ganna's successful record-breaking ride, I spoke to Edward Pickering, author of The Race Against Time, a book which tells the brilliant, compelling story of the battle for supremacy between O'Brien and Chris Boardman as they attempted to get the upper hand in the purest of cycling challenges, the hour record, back in 1993 and 94. I started by asking Ed whether he considered O'Brien to be an athlete, a genius or both. That's a very good question, actually. Um, when he was breaking our records, um, obviously a lot of the emphasis that the, his coverage got was on, on, the, on the genius side of things. Like He basically invented um, a position on the bike, which no one else had... Well, well with a caveat, not many other people had had tried. He eliminated um, a lot of he eliminated, eliminated the arms from the position by crouching in a tuck, and um, the it it was an act of genius to to work that out. But at the same time, it also took away from the fact he was actually a pretty handy athlete. Um, I was I was reading back through through the book I I did on because I you know I've, I've not touched on the subject for some time, and. I was reminded that when he was in his late teens, I think, or mid-teens, he beat um, Bob Addy, former Tour de France rider, in a local time trial in Scotland. And that was before he'd come up with his position. So, yes, he was a genius, um, but he was also a hell of an athlete. And that's that's sometimes forgotten. I think that's, uh, you know, it's 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 not really fair to him to describe him as this kind of maverick genius who, because he invented a new position, broke all these records. He actually broke the records because he was extremely strong um, on an aerobic level like you know like many great cyclists you mentioned maverick there i mean maverick eccentric all these words sort of come to mind when trying to talk about graham O'Brien, especially because the huge rivalry with chris boardman it was like opposite sides of the same coin really wasn't it they were both trying to solve the same problem they were going about it in quite different ways and their sort of characters and personalities were quite different too. Yeah, absolutely. It was perfect, perfect rivalry. And that's, that's, that's why I wrote a book about it. So I'm getting, getting, getting plugs for the race against time in um, here. But the story was irresistible. Um, Boardman was kind of painted as the scientific training race by numbers organized well-planned rider with very few highs and lows it's very kind of flat with Borden it's like that obviously he achieved great things but you got the impression that he he took the the triumphs and the disappointments with kind of equanimity really He, he seemed very unemotional and on the other side of that you had Graham Obrey who you know the it's hard to find another word other than maverick to describe him. He, he was wacky. He he had a huge character. You know, he he later, 
you know, revealed that, you know, he'd, he'd experienced episodes of depression and mental mental illness. He had a lot of challenges like that. And in his cycling career, it was dealing with high as well, terrifying lows. He would, he would train and train and train and, and, you know, break the hour record and then kind of fall off a cliff and, and not be able to train, just not, not find the motivation. And you got the sense that there was much more in the way of highs and lows. And with Aubrey, again, it kind of does him a disservice that we describe him as somebody who who was kind of inventive. You know, he built his own bike and invented a position. But he was more organised and more of, a, more of a scientist, actually, than anyone actually gave him credit for at the time. Um, I spoke to Peter Keane when I was interviewing my book about, about the two of them. And this was, you know, many years after they were in the rivalry. It's probably 15 years or so after after the peak of the rivalry. And, you know, the perception at the time was that Boardman and Keane were doing things scientifically and Obi was just kind of coming in like a, like a creative genius and, and disrupting everything. But Keane actually said that Obi probably more so than Boardman and Keane had a, an intuitive and sorry dogs barking he had an intuitive and kind of very refined understanding of science because he he was into aerodynamics he didn't do it in a in a book smart way maybe the way that Keenan um Boardman did but he nevertheless understood aerodynamics implicitly and that's that's why he was so good I mean, just tell me how much um, dealings you had with Aubrey when you were writing the book, and what you made of him as a as a character and a personality. Um, so I went to interview Aubrey at, at home in a small town called Saltcoats up in up in Scotland, and you know, he, in, he invited me up. I, I, I spent spent the day there, and it's 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 a great interview. It's fantastic. I mean, it, it you know that this is he wasn't in that kind of milieu where you had to go through press offices and layers of protection and he he was media savvy but he wasn't media trained and he was very you know he, he's very honest and outgoing so you know we we sat down in a cafe they went back to his house and and just just chatted really i just listened i listened to what he said and originally we we're going to do the whole interview in the cafe but i i persuaded him um i'd <laughs> I, I said that the, the, it was too noisy in there and my recording equipment was having trouble picking it up. I mean, it, it was kind of a... I wanted to get to his place because I, I, I felt that I'd, I'd learn a lot by, by having having a, having a look around and having him kind of in his own... kind of, kind of in, in his comfort zone. So I went back to his house and it was kind of... Maybe not fair of me to say this, but it's, it's, it's exactly what I hoped. It was kind of a little chaotic... Um, Obi is a kind of like the, the mad genius side of him is that he 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 has ideas at a thousand miles an hour and he kind of acts on one and then acts on the next and acts on the next. He's he's not the kind of person who sees a job through to the fin to the finish. He'll kind of do that till he's interested and pick up something else. So you know, on his table, kitchen table, he had you know, he was he had the makings of a bike with all the and he you know you could see the lines that he'd drawn in pencil to get the angles right on the kitchen table there was a vice you know I, I don't have a vice attached to my kitchen table um Graham Obi did and I felt that you know that being able to see that gave me an insight into his personality that you know I would I could have inferred but 
you know, not not firsthand. And then as far as talking goes, he, I mean, he, he's he's brilliant. He's so such an interesting guy and so honest about himself. And he's, you know, I, I think he's he's probably done a fair bit of therapy during his life. He's he's kind of got that practice facility at talking about himself and kind of analyzing himself and he's you know he's had his issues but he he's he's confronted them and tackled them and thought about them and reflected on them and tried to work out why he has them and that gave him probably a, a greater insight to himself and the ability to talk about himself in that way so I, I i felt that you know it's just fascinating personality and and you know such a such a unique character in the in the history of our sport and I mean, the story of his hour record attempts is, I mean, that 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 year um, between his first attempt, I mean, not quite a year, but between his first attempt in uh, July 1993 and then uh, Boardman taking the record not even a week later and then O'Brien taking it back again in April 1994. I mean, it was, uh, it had taken a, a dormant... Um, record really hadn't it because Francesco Moser's record had stood since 1984 and then Aubry came along and the, the the story of just his first attempt is extraordinary the failure and then getting up the next day and having another go and breaking Moser's record and then obviously the kind of the, the 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 tabloid version of the story with Old Faithful and the washing machine parts and all of that which kind of captured a sort of mainstream media attention uh, in a way that kind of indoor um cycling records probably wouldn't have done had there not been that maverick element no and i said earlier on that maybe we're unfair to obrey painting him as this kind of maverick genius who just dropped in and, and broke the hour record but at the same time you know talking to people talking to him and talking to the people around him for that record and people who were there it was a shambles i mean it, it, it's the shambles is what made it you know elevated it even even further because you know he this was before you know when you think of the interest in the hour record the last few years there's been massive media organizations a huge amount of um planning um publicity you know with with Gana, Filippo Gano's recent hour record yeah you know, the whole Ineos Grenadiers publicity machine um pumping out publicity about it and promoting it and supporting it you know scientists and hangers-on and lots of people in this big team effort which resulted in Ghana breaking the record with Obrey it, it really was a ragtag assembly of uh, a few guys who could help him out and you know he had a, he had a, a, a manager Vic Haynes at the time who kind of did his best to keep everything on a kind of on an even keel and Obrey kind of being being Obrey, um, he managed to scratch together some sponsorship from I think it was an insurance company, um, uh, who you know who he got 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 to know somehow along the way, and they didn't have they didn't have much money. They rented the velodrome in in Hamar in Norway, um, for the week before Boardman was doing his attempt, which was a cheeky bit of kind of thunder thunder stealing there and. He had had a bike, a replica of his old faithful bike made by Mike Burrows, the bike designer who recently died, who who was also involved in the Chris Boardman story because he designed Boardman's Lotus um, Olympic bike. So Mike Burrows made this beautiful replica of old faithful. And it was, I, I saw it, it was at Vic Haynes' house when I went to interview him. It was the most beautiful, sleek 
spare, minimalist, narrow bike. Um, and Obi, the plan was for Obi to ride it in the hour record. And he did. And he put a different gear on it and rode a slightly different position for no other reason than he's kind of, he's, he's Graham Obi. Like you just, you just wouldn't do that. I mean, I, if I have my saddle height wrong on my bike, um, I feel it terribly the next day. I mean, this is an elite athlete who's trained in one position. He he went out and used the wrong gear and the wrong position. And that's that's essentially why he didn't break the record the first time around. And, you know, it's the perfect narrative that he went back to Old Faithful the next day, um, had one more crack at it, having kind of managed to ward off stiffness by waking himself up in the night by drinking bottles of water so he'd wake up naturally i mean it's 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 an incredible story and then he, he broke it the next day and you know to not many fan spectators most you know most of the journalists had gone home that day i remember lee keep ran the photo of obi on the front of the newspaper and this you know this during the tour de france um the next day but they actually had to use a photograph from the failed attempt because the photographer had gone gone home um, and missed the actual successful hour attempt. So it was a shambles, but isn't it? Isn't the story a lot better as a result of that? Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. The Tour de Cost series is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 cycle computer. The Carew 2 has been our guide every day, giving us turn-by-turn directions and making it easy for us to find our way on unfamiliar roads. All our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Carew 2 at hammerhead.io. Add the heart rate monitor and the Carew 2 to your shopping cart and use the promo code CYCLE at checkout. Science in sport. Not just the fuel of athletes, but the fuel of champions. From Filippo Ganna to Ethan Hayter, and now Lionel Burney and Simon Gill. The 2022 Tour de Cost champions, admittedly champions by default. Their ride is fuelled by science in sport. Their bottles filled to the brim with beta fuel. Their cafe breaks boosted by energy bakes. Get 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the code SISCP25. Neither Simon nor I fancied a killy pie at 10.30 in the morning. And we wanted to get back on the road while there was a break in the rain. So we asked Sam, our super domestique, our sports director, our broom wagon driver, to pop round the corner to Browning's, the baker's, to pick up some pies for dinner while Simon and I got rolling again. As we left town, I saw signs outside a newsagent's advertising the Kilmarnock Standard, which is where the great sports writer and journalist Hugh McIlvanny began his career. McIlvanny was born and brought up in Kilmarnock, and he joined the local paper straight from school. After that came a long and distinguished career, including 30 years at The Observer and 23 years with The Sunday Times. He's the only sports reporter to win the British Journalist of the Year Award, and his football writing is sublime. His coverage of the 1974 boxing clash, the rumble in the jungle between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, and the interview with Ali back at his base just a few hours after the fight are legendary. McIlvanny died in January 2019, and I'm not sure if he ever wrote about the Tour de France or cycling, but if any listeners out there know different, please let me know, because he was so brilliant on every subject. I wonder what his rich prose would have made of a sport like cycling. 
There must be something in the water in Kilmarnock because his brother William was a very fine novelist and crime writer too. Anyway, this is Hugh McIlvanny on his craft and it's a sentiment I think we can all identify with. The work I do is just pretty straightforward uh, in its requirements. I've just got to try and write half-decently as a job of work for newspaper readers. My attitude is not, this will be a triumph. My attitude is, don't screw it up. I feel like we've overcome our first slightly difficult moment this morning, Simon. It's been damp, hasn't it? It's been damp. It hasn't actually properly rained, but it's just been fine enough rain to just dampen the spirit slightly. And having said that, the sun has now come out and I feel feel like we've weathered the worst of it. But um, rolling into Kilmarnock, you, well, it was actually worked out to be very good timing because you had a rear wheel puncture just as we arrived at Rugby Park and Super Sam, um, CEO, Sports Director, Swanier, not quite Swanier yet, Ma- but Mechanic, he replaced your inner tube in double quick time while I was talking to David Miller and uh, you went off and photographed Rugby Park. I did. And we've wiggled our way through on cycle route off the road haven't we it's been cycle path most of it absolutely fine but there's been a bit of broken glass and a few obstacles to pick our way through and past and just um slightly when it's wet just worry about picking up something that's gonna pierce the tires but here we are we're over halfway on stage four we've got a ride to largs on the coast i'm just putting my pink pink map jersey on I think that will go down well in... Um... It looks nice, Simon. It does look nice, it's actually, very, it? Yeah, yeah, it is nice. Um, it suits you, that colour, actually. Pastel. Pastel pink, yeah. So, what's on the, re- the agenda? Well, we'll go to Largs, we'll have a coffee in Largs. Ice and cream? Well, ice cream? If we all <laughs> scream for ice cream? It, the famous Nardini's ice cream shop is in Largs, isn't it? I think we need a scoop, don't we? At least one scoop. It isn't the weather for it, but you've you've told me about this for months now, and I'm really looking forward to it. Well, we'll go and have a scoop of ice cream then. And then I'll probably drop mine on the floor. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, let's not let's not uh, drop our ice creams on the floor. And then it's just over the, I think over a bit of a lump, dropping down into Greenock to go to Capulo Park, home of Greenock Morton. Uh, which is our destination today. I was talking to David Miller about football because it turns out he is a Kilmarnock fan and goes regularly to Rugby Park. They're top of the championship uh, in a bit of a neck-and-neck race with Arbroath, who he told me are the only part-time team in the Scottish Championship. All the other teams are full-time. So Arbroath apparently part-time. And he was singing the praises of the manager and his assistant, um, and I must admit, I've got a soft spot for our broth. Uh, seeing them in the Scottish Premier League, hosting Rangers and Celtic and Dundee United and Aberdeen and Hibs and Hearts and uh, so on would be would be remarkable. It would be a kind of fairy tale story. You don't really get. I mean, you do get small teams in the Tour de France, obviously non-world tour teams in the Tour de France. But that's uh, our broth being part time, meaning their players all have other jobs. 
That's amazing. Oh, and they don't train, you know, whatever, five days a week, all day. So probably just evening training sessions. That is amazing, actually. Good luck to our boys. Well, that was a much-needed stop in Nardini's, the cafe and ice cream shop in Largs, looking out over quite a rough, not a, not a rough-looking sea, but it's, it's not still calm waters, is it? It's windy out there. The palm trees are flapping around in the window there, aren't they? And we've got to go back out there any minute now. And I'm, I'm nice and warm now, and I'm full of tea and soup. Yeah. Um, I went to the toilet, and I accidentally dropped one of my gloves in the toilet. Unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd find that funny. Oh, Lionel. Fortunately, only the cuff bit got um, damp. I mean, the toilet was clean. I mean, clean as, <laughs> as clean as a toilet can be, I guess. What, what are you going to do? I'm going to put the glove on and I'm going to not think about it. <laughs> Next stop, Green at Morton. From Green at Kurok and the port for miles and miles around A happy band of honest folk make for a certain ground With dammy scarves and banners to our faces all aglow We sing as we go Cause we want the world to know we follow Morton from Capelo the pride of green of town They play like thunder breath That's why they never let us down When things get tough and the ships are down They send the really at their best Because it's all for one and one for all And the fighting spirit does the rest as we crested the final hill of the day and got our first glimpse of the Clyde, the artery that led from Glasgow to the world, Daniel Gray's phrase about the industrial scars came immediately to my mind. We swooped down the descent of the old Largs Road and headed in the direction of Capillo Park's floodlights, picking them out among the other cranes, towers and warehouse buildings. Access granted. Thanks ever so much. So what's your name? My name is Mark Kelly. I'm a commercial executive here. And a lifelong fan of the club? Yep, been a fan of Green Up since I've been a wee boy. Um, started working for the club as of the 1st of March, so landed my dream job. Oh, so wow. We're community owned as well, so things like this, you know, helping people out in the community and stuff, is anything we can do to help, we'll, we'll try. Well, yeah, I mean, can you remember your first game? Uh, first game was against, it was at Capital here, it was against Airdrie, uh, must have been 1992, I think it finished a one each draw, but I can show you where I stood, it was in the Sinclair Street end, um, I can show you that, but I remember that one, that's when I caught the bug. So. It's one of the most uh, attractive looking grounds to me, this, because of the, the cranes in the background and the just the, the it, it, it says everything about the area, doesn't it? Because of obviously the, the shipbuilding industry that's that's so huge. What sort of shapes the shipbuilding industry in in now in uh, in Greenock? Well, we've still got Ferguson's, um, which is just up the road um, at Port Glasgow, so that's still quite strong. Um, that's pretty much all that's left now, unfortunately. All the way down from Port Glasgow to Greenock used to be just filled with shipyards. Um, in fact, they, we've got a stand over there called the Wee Dublin End, which is called that because there was a lot of uh, immigrants from Dublin come over many years ago, and that was they were working in the shipyards and stuff like that. And this is one of, if not the oldest grounds going. Morton have played here since 1879, um, so we're 
This is home for life. And this is a big year, isn't it, for the club? Because it's marking a very special centenary. Yep, 100 years since we last won the Scottish Cup. We beat Rangers 1-0 um, at Hamden in 1922. We beat them 1-0, so uh, hopefully it will happen again sometime in my lifetime. And you were just saying when we bumped into you here, uh, thanks so much for letting us in, by the way. Uh, it's been gr- amazing how friendly everyone's been and interested in what we're doing, our madcap trip. But you even had the Scottish Cup here this afternoon. Uh, yes, so we did, unfortunately, our game against Hamilton on the 16th of April. We were trying to get the cup for that because that's our 100-year weekend, but that's the uh, the weekend of the Scottish Cup semi-finals. Um, but thankfully, the SFA let us get the Scottish Cup down today to get some pictures for promotional stuff. Um, we'll just try to make a big week of it that week. And you've got a great uh, shirt this year. I mean, I'm a big fan of football jerseys, cycling jerseys. I think they say something about the team and the athletes that wear them. Um, But the 100th anniversary jersey of the Scottish Cup, it's basically a replica of the jersey they would have worn in Hamden in 1922. Yeah, it's just a replica of what they wore. And big thanks to our main sponsors, McGill's Buses. They allowed us to go with the strip without putting their sponsor on the front so that it gave it that you know proper look. But the, the fans love this strip. It's, it's been one of the most successful ones we've done. I made a beeline to the Greenock Morton Club shop to buy one of their shirts. Morton play in brilliant blue and white hoops. And it made me wonder why there have been so few hoop jerseys in cycling. Off the top of my head, I can think only of the Italian Atala squad who wore narrow pale grey and blue hoop jerseys in the 1980s, and more recently, the French Delco team, although their design was more horizontal pinstripes than hoops. Anyway, put me down for more hooped cycling jerseys, please. Um, Let's walk around the corner and you can show me where you stood as a little boy. I was saying to you earlier, there is a link between my team Watford and Greenock Morton because in 1984... Watford came up to Scotland and played a couple of friendlies, one against Dumbarton and one against Green at Morton, when they just signed, uh, not long signed, Maurice Johnston, who kind of ripped up the Scottish League for Partick Thistle, didn't he? And then, of course, controversially, both for Rangers and Celtic. Aye, there's not too many players that can cross a divide uh, between Celtic and Rangers, but um, I, 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 I didn't actually know that Watford had played here, but um, I'll just take you over here and I'll show you where I stood. So this here is called the Sinkler Street in just because that's the name of the street so I stood actually see the, the second barrier in that's where I stood so that's what grounds we did a bit of verty draining doing some drainage work on the pitch there oh it's fantastic I mean even the floodlights on the kind of goalpost shape there that's almost redolent of the shipyards as well isn't it yeah it is I mean Greenock and Inverclyde it's, the shipyards were such a massive thing and it's like anywhere else unfortunately it's not the same as it used to be but um Greenock Morton are very important to the community and the community are even more important to us now because we are a, a community-owned club, actually. Uh, we are owned by the fans, so we're doing everything we can to get a, a good team on the park as well as off the park. How has this season been going? Uh, it didn't go off to the best of starts, but since our new manager, Dougie Emery, came in in December, it's been a massive turnaround, so we should be safe for the staying in the championship. The tough old league, isn't it? It is. I mean, if you look at teams like Kilmarnock that come down, Rangers, Hearts, took them a few seasons to get out of the championship it's not as easy as people think but for Inverclyde to have a professional football club is, is a massive part of the, the community and just in terms of the ground I mean you know I love it because I love the fact that there's so much history here this this you can just imagine you know people in the 80s 70s 60s 50s and, and before that uh, cheering from the terraces I love a I love a big open terrace behind the goal as well but in terms of the game's progression, so many clubs are moving to new grounds, aren't there? Are there any plans for, for Morton or 
Uh, are you happy here? I can't see Morton moving from Capital Park anytime soon. This is this is our home, so. It just wouldn't be the same without the big crane behind the goal there, would it? I mean, it's just absolutely iconic. No, I mean, we had a game here on Friday night live on BBC and football under the lights. It's just tremendous. And I think the BBC cameras, they always get a shot of the crane in the background. It's iconic. So it's just a great ground, you know, and see when it's, it's got our kind of 2,000 fans in the place is rocking. So no better place to be. So hopefully you can come up for a game one day. I will do indeed. Yeah, thank you. We call them Martin from Capilo. They are the pride of Green Oak Town. They play like thoroughbreds. That's why they never let us down. Come on, Aton, eh, Simon? That's what they say at Green at Morton. Come on, Aton. Blank face. Blank face. <laughs> I think this is my new favourite ground. Oh, yeah. It's got everything, hasn't it? It has, hasn't it? The big crane what's, in the distance. What's the checklist for everything? Floodlights, check. Excellent floodlights. The yeah. goalpost floodlights on the other side are just fantastic. They look great. The terracing is fantastic at both ends, really. The wooden bench seating at the other end for the away supporters is great. The coup shed with its kind of corrugated blue roof, fantastic. Everything about it is just, it's just, uh, as I said, you, you can kind of peel away at the layers and see a century or more, well, well over a century. I think he said the 1870s they first played here. Wow. They played all their games here, obviously, in that time. Um, you can peel away the layers and, and see the almost see the history of the club just by looking around anyway I think it's time we need to get to our Airbnb we've got to well we've got to cater for ourselves tonight we've got a killy pie each if we want one I noticed Sam didn't eat much of his hot fudge sundae in, <laughs> in Nardini's ice cream shop I think we need some vegetables can we or a salad with a killy pie on top maybe well, Mark from Morton there said that um, there's a, a sponsorship deal with a pie company in Scottish football where they do a, a pie of the month or a pie of the week or whatever. Oh, yeah. And the other week it was a doner kebab pie. So basically doner kebab meat and sauce in a pie. <laughs> and even for me, that's that a too, too far. A step too far. I mean, I, I do enjoy a, a good doner kebab. There's, a, again, it's a... It's a culinary delicacy that, that can be very good, but the quality does also fall off a cliff quite rapidly. Um, not all establishments do does, a good one. Does it fall off a cliff as the, the big elephant's leg gets thinner? <laughs> yeah. I think it does, doesn't it? The rotating elephant's leg of, of I assume, meat. Oh. <laughs> But we've got, uh, yeah, we've got to cater for ourselves. I think a killy pie with some vegetables and maybe some new potatoes, I don't know, yeah. and some gravy. Why not? Definitely. Let's go. And uh, we can do some laundry as well in our Airbnb, I think, as well. Get some washing tabs in the supermarket and get ready to go. Two days in Glasgow coming up. It's going to be wet, I'm afraid, for a couple of days. Pretty wet. So 
we're tougher now though I think after a few days on the road I think I think we're tougher people than we were five days ago we are we I think we are we're I felt pretty good coming in there over the climb it was a well it was again a sensational piece of road if you ever need to get from Largs to Greenock don't go on the coast road take the little road worried the motherships lost us Oh, are you worried the mothership's lost us? Well, we'll go and stand in sight. But the little road is called Brisbane Glen Road, and it was an absolutely stunning, quiet, for the most part, beautifully surfaced road. Started off with an 8k climb, but it wasn't silly. It was quite gentle in places. There were little ramps, but it went up and up and into the countryside and past a couple of locks absolutely sensational road one of the best stretches of road I've ever ridden anywhere I mean I've only really ridden in Britain and Europe I've never gone further afield than that but absolutely stunning and um, I'm now also worried we've lost the mothership that's stage four of the Tour de Cosse recorded by me Lionel Burney and Simon Gill the series was produced by Tom Wally Thank you to everyone we met on our way and especially to Sam Slatter, our sports director and the driver of our broom wagon. Join us next time as we head into the heart of Glasgow. Scottish League Premier Division, Aberdeen 2, Kilmarnock 0. Celtic 5, Morton 1. And the United against Motherwell evening kickoff at 7.30. Hibernian 0, Rangers 0. St Mirren 0, Dundee 0. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.